0: Will you join me in reading our scripture this morning from Acts 27, verse 21 through 26. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete, and thereby avoided this damage and loss. I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For last night there stood me an angel of the God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before the emperor, and indeed, God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we will have to run around on some island. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This guy Flash Thompson. He probably deserved what happened. But just because you can beat him up, doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Good morning. So my name is Melissa Nelms. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the youth director here at Acts 2, and it is my pleasure to share in the Word with you this morning. Um, Our youth have actually been following along with this sermon series as well on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, and I have to admit that it has been a little bit of a programming challenge for me as I've written curriculum and led them through that, because I am not a comic hero buff at all. It's not my bag. I'm not good at it. I don't know who any of them are, but I remember Peter Parker. Uh, Andy and I were in high school when Spider-Man came out, and I remember going on a date. We were like freshmen in high school, and we had our parents there because you didn't do anything before you were 16 without parents or anything. So we went and saw Spider-Man, and there was something about Peter Parker's story that just kind of intrigued me. Um, he wasn't your typical superhero. Uh, he wasn't born with supernatural powers. He was kind of uh, forced into this responsibility by some happenstance um, you know, incident. He was in a science lab and he got bitten by a radioactive spider, which is completely random. But he inherited all of these superpowers as a as a result of it. And I remember thinking how interesting that was. How he lived it out um, after that moment. Um, so Peter Parker gets bit by this spider. He's got this new responsibility, and he thinks that everything's going to change for him. But what actually happens is he goes back to school the next day with all these awesome powers that he's just found, and he's the same nerdy kid that everybody picks on and that is the brunt of everybody's jokes and that can't get the girl, and he's bullied. And he decides that he's going to stand up to the bully and fight back because he's got these awesome powers. He can actually do it now. And uh, what Uncle Ben here is telling him is that Just because you have the ability doesn't mean you should do it, because with great power comes great responsibility. And that kind of rang in my head as I was considering our biblical hero this morning. With great power comes great responsibility. So when Peter first received his power, he had absolutely no idea what responsibility actually came with his powers. He didn't know what... um, what all that meant, he was still a troubled teenager with the same teenage angst and a major attitude problem as Uncle Ben and his aunt were trying to point out to him he needed to make some changes. but and to everyone else, it seemed like nothing had changed, but he had undergone, undergone this huge change. Um, I'd invite you to take out your notes and kind of follow along with us here. It might help guide you through this conversation. When given responsibility, self-serving leaders react Out of fear is what we find. That's your first blank there. Um, And Peter was no different. When he came into this responsibility, he, um, like many others do, he was tested by difficult situation, by uh, bullies at school, or by a a cheating stage manner who was trying to cheat him out of money, and he reacted out of fear, a fear that somebody wasn't going to take him seriously, that somebody didn't see him for who he really was and the power that he was capable of. And he reacted out of fear, and it led to horrible consequences. His uncle Ben um, died because of his actions or lack of action. Um, and that's what we see in the story of David as well, as we see leaders acting out of fear. And so to understand David, we have to actually look back at the story of Saul, who was the very first king of Israel, who came just before David. And David is what we would consider a um, self-serving leader. Um in 1 Samuel 10, we read this, that Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. He said, the Lord has anointed you ruler over his people. You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. Now this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has, has anointed you ruler over his heritage. Samuel was anointing Saul to be the first king of Israel, we see. You see, the Israelites had been crying out for a king. They wanted a king desperately. They'd been crying to God over and over, we want a king, we need a king. They'd been ruled by judges for years and years, and unfortunately, they'd had a long string of really evil, bad judges that really weren't that great at judging and didn't give them a lot of guidance. And so they wanted a king. They thought that would be better, that that would give them more direction and more guidance. And God kept telling them, that's not what you want. A king is not what you need. What you need is me. If you put your trust in me, I will be your guide. I will be your judge. I'm the perfect one. But they still wanted a king. And so God listened, and God gave them a king, and he gave them Saul. And um, as God told the Israelites, it was not great because after Samuel anointed Saul, the first king of Israel, he immediately sinned. Immediately. This happens within a chapter. Samuel goes to Saul, he pours oil on his head, and the next thing we read is Saul gets freaked out, he gets impatient, and he sins. And so we read this in the story um, of in First Samuel 13, we read a little bit about what happens. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people began to slip away from Saul So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the offerings of well-being. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to meet him and salute him. Uh, Samuel is not in Gilgal yet. And so before we get too much further, we need to pause and understand what has happened in the previous few verses. So they're waiting on Samuel to get to Gilgal to offer a burnt offering, because in the last few verses, Saul and his son Jonathan have just defeated the Philistine army in Gita, a few miles away. Okay? The Philistines were the fiercest warriors in the area of the time, and the Israelites were up against them, and the Israelites were the lesser warriors. But Jonathan defeats them at Gita, and Saul thinks this is awesome. Obviously, he's just been anointed king. He's been defeated the fir- in the first battle. He's defeated the Philistines, and he's gloating. He is all-powerful, and he is gloating. His son has done this for him. We're going to go do the same thing at Gilgal, so they start heading down, and what... Do you know, the Philistines hear him boasting about his great victory, and they bulk up. They start uh, pulling in new troops. They've got 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And the scripture actually says they have so many troops, it's like the sand on the seashore. That's how many they were. You can't count them. And so Saul continues his journey from Gita down to Gilgal with his troops these small Israelites, and they see the Philistine army bulking up around them, and they hide in the caves and the holes and the rocks because they are terrified of what the Philistines are getting ready to do. And they're waiting for Samuel to arrive to offer this burnt offering so that God will be on their side and will help them win against the Philistines because they're terrified, they're trembling, and they're upset. So Samuel said, after Saul has taken it upon himself to sacrifice the burnt offering— What have you done? When I saw that the people were slipping away from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal, and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly, and you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Chapter ago, he gets anointed. He has this great victory against the Philistines. He gets scared. He makes the burnt offering himself. And God says, nope, it's not how this works. I gave you a command. You're supposed to trust in me. And so God rejects Saul. Immediately after he's anointed him, the first king of Israel, he rejects him. What we find here is that the fear of Saul's people bred fear in Saul. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't stand the pressure of his men getting worried and they thinking that it might reflect poorly on his own leadership. And so their fear bred fear in him, and he reacted out of that fear. So fear breeds fear. They went trembling to the caves, and they scattered, and he reacted. Saul trusted the opinions of others over God's. He listened to his men and what the men were saying about his leadership rather than listening to God and remaining in the confidence that he was a good leader because he was the chosen and the anointed by God. That should have been enough, and it wasn't. And for Saul, this was the beginning of the end. For as soon as Samuel arrives, he rebukes Saul, and God rejects him as king, even saying later on that he is sorry he ever anointed him king in the first place. It was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. And then we enter David into the picture, our unlikely hero. So after Saul is rejected, David is then anointed. God sends Samuel to Jesse, to the Bethlehemite who's got seven other sons who are great candidates for this job and God passes over them and says nope there's another one so Jesse brings his youngest son in from the field who was an afterthought to Jesse and God anoints him as the second king of Israel to follow Saul now that Saul has been rejected as king. We read in first Samuel sixteen about this anointing. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shemar pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all sorry, are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring for him, for he will, we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in, and now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. Earlier, it actually says, God didn't look upon the appearance of David, but at his heart. And he saw something in his heart that told him, this is the man. This is our hero. This is the one that's going to lead our people. Not long after David is anointed, he is summoned to the king's court to comfort Saul, who has now been tormented by evil spirits because God has left him. God has rejected him as king, and his power is no longer with Saul, but with David. And he feels this. He feels this in torment by evil spirits. And so there's somebody in his court who says, well, I know someone who might be able to help. And lo and behold, it's David. And David goes to the courts and he plays his harp and he brings Saul comfort with his music. So Saul begins to recognize that God's presence is with David. It's no longer with him, but he can see it present in David's life. Now, unlike unlike Saul, who was a selfish leader... David shows servant leadership facing Goliath, which is our next kind of story leading up to David's kingship. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against these Philistines to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep, your sh- keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. He was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his flock, which Saul had not been willing to do, which is great foreshadowing for what will come at the end of this battle with Goliath. When we become the leader and try to make God the servant, things don't work out for us, just as they didn't work out for Saul. But David listened to God more than he listened to Saul. He knew who he was. He he knew who he was. Even though Saul told him he was just a boy and he couldn't do it, he knew that if he was going to try, he at least needed to have the king's armor when he went into battle with Goliath, this giant of the Philistine army, this fiercest army around. And so Saul says, here, take all of my armor. Put on my shield. Put on my armor. Put on my helmet. Take my sword and just gear up for this because this is going to be the battle of your life. And so he dresses David in all of this garb, and David's a young man. It doesn't really fit him very well. He's not a warrior. He's been a shepherd his whole life, so he's kind of lanky, and doesn't—it just doesn't feel right to him. And David knows where his power comes from, and it doesn't come from the king's armor. David. defeated Goliath while rejecting Saul's armor. It says Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped Saul's sword over the armor and he tried in vain to walk for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag, in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Philistine, And he took down Goliath with five stones and a slingshot rather than Saul's armor and military might. David defeated Goliath while rejecting Saul's armor. He shrugged off Saul's knee for self-protection and military might because David trusted in God for his protection and power. There's a little bit of symbolism here if you look in this act of rejecting Saul's armor. Saul represents one form of leadership and power, leadership that is self-serving and has led to Saul's torment, and in rejecting Saul's armor as David goes into battle, he essentially rejects Saul's example of leadership as well. I'm not going to do it the way you did it. That didn't work out for you. That led to God's rejection of you. He's choosing to lead in a different way, the way that a shepherd would lead, and as he has led his own flocks at home. A servant leader is a foreign and scary thing to Saul that doesn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense to many people in our world today either. But this form of leadership ultimately makes David the greatest king of Israel and one that is remembered as a man after God's own heart despite his many flaws and screw-ups, and there are many of those in the stories that we won't even have time to cover today. David responded rather than reacted to the situation with the Philistines and with Goliath. He took time to consider the outcome of wearing all of that armor and how it would affect his ability to approach Goliath. And he thought about his past experience in the fields with the sheep and the lions and the bears. And he knew that God's character was unchanging and that God would be present with him then, just as he had been in the fields protecting his flocks. He knew that God's strength could defeat Goliath without all the fancy gear that didn't fit him anyway. And he took time and he responded to the situation at hand rather than reacting out of fear as Saul had done time and time again, bulking up for the battle, wearing the king's armor that probably would have hindered him and certainly would have separated him from God just as it had separated Saul from God. My senior high youth will find this a little bit familiar, I hope, because we've been going through a book together this summer on sermon leadership. It's called Lead Like Jesus. And if you haven't had the opportunity to read it, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, But in this book, the author talks about our ego and our um, how it can either separate us from God or draw us closer to God. And they use this nifty little acronym, and they flip it on its head. Uh, So we have the word ego here, edging God out. That would be our egomaniac, uh, if you will, and exalting God only, someone who lays their ego on the altar and sacrifices it to God. And so we're going to go back and forth here. So somebody who edges God out is putting something in God's place, an idol, if you will. Someone who exalts God only decides to worship God only. They've sacrificed themselves. They're not going to put them as an idol or a superior to God. They're going to worship God first. They're trusting in something other than God. Somebody who's edging God out, whereas someone who's exalting God only depends on God completely for everything. And finally, someone who's edging God out values other opinions more than God's, just as Saul valued the opinions of his people more than he did God's. Someone who exalts God only sees God as their judge and finds their self worth and their self confidence in God rather than in themselves and other people. Uh, Andre Andre Agassi, I, I don't know if anybody are tennis players or watch tennis, uh, but he's an awesome tennis player. He has four Grand Slams, he won two Opens, and he wrote in his memoirs, I mean, that he, about his tennis career and his coaching and all of that back in 2006. He was. I was trying to kind of put this in, in terms that I would understand because I don't watch tennis very much, but uh, it's kind of like the Triple Crown, I guess. If you win a Grand Slam, it's uh, winning three really big things all at once or whatever the equivalent is in your sports uh, you know, atmosphere. I don't do sports very much, but his, his story spoke to me. So he wrote in his memoirs uh, this. He said, I hate Tennis. I hate it with a dark secret passion and always have. I hate tennis, hate it with all my heart, and still keep playing. Why on earth would you still play tennis if you hated it? It doesn't make sense. But he probably valued the opinions of his coaches and his parents and his peers who were pressuring him to do better and better because he was succeeding at it. They told him he was good at it, but he didn't enjoy it. And so he kept doing it because he valued the opinions of others more, and then he got, found success. And success far exceeded the importance of his happiness because success brings money and wealth and um, you know accolade and all these good things, we think, but it made him miserable. Why? Why would you do something you hate? Why would you torment yourself? God doesn't ask us to do this. He says, set those things aside. That's not where your value is. It's not where your worth and your confidence come from. It's from me. Valuing others' opinions more than God's will put us in jobs that we hate. It will put us in relationships with people who tell us we are less than nothing and who make us miserable and do not lift us up but pull us down. It will make life lonely and frustrated and will put us in a place of fear where we're not able to move forward and live the life God's given us to live. So let's not let our egos get in the way of knowing who we truly are and whose we are, which brings us to our first action step here. You have to answer the question for yourself, who are you and whose are you? Who did God create you to be? What is good about you? What do you enjoy what makes life happy for you? Who are you? What defines you? Where does your confidence in your self-worth lie? The important thing to remember when you're answering this question is that you are God's. That's the answer to whose you are. If you are answering that question with any other answer, it's not the right answer because first and foremost, your identity is found in Christ, in Christ our Savior. You are His creation. You are loved unconditionally. And when we know that to be our identity, it is much easier to lead from a place of great self worth and God grounded confidence, regardless of whether others think or say about us. The second thing is to respond rather than react. Most of our decisions in life are not life or death. Most of us don't have to make snap decisions that decide whether somebody lives or dies, hopefully. We don't have to react. In fact, when we react, we usually make really poor decisions like Saul did. They are decisions made based on fear and pride and self preservation, and they are decisions that usually benefit nobody but ourselves, and they separate us from God and others. We don't have to react, we can choose to respond instead. When you respond, take time. Take time. You don't have to make a knee-jerk reaction or a snap decision. Take time to reflect. Pray and talk to God and seek wise counsel. Make a good decision. Take time. You have the time. And finally, use your power responsibly. You have been given great power through the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we can do things far beyond imagination if we just trust in that power but we have to use it responsibly. It's not meant for us. It's meant for the world. We have to lead like Jesus, like David, and like a humble servant to work to bring justice and mercy here on earth. And like Uncle Ben said, with great power comes great responsibility. Amen. Let us pray. God, thank you for the power that you have given us to do great things to bring justice and mercy in this world to bring your kingdom closer here on earth as it is in heaven we pray that you would help us to set our egos aside long enough to see the self-worth and the love that you have for us that we are created in your image and that so is everyone else that we would take time to reflect on your goodness to seek your counsel and the counsel of other loving people in our life that want nothing but good for us, that we would respond in ways that are loving and kind and helpful and not harmful for the worth of others and not for our own. God, we pray that we might learn to be responsible with the power you have given us. And when we don't have the words to say, we pray that you would help us as we remember those words that Jesus taught us.